The title of this evening's talk is The Liberating Embrace of Anicca, Impermanence. And some words from the Buddha. So you should view this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. And from Crowfoot, who was a leader of the Blackfoot American Indian tribe in the early 1900s, what is life? It's the flash of a firefly in night. It's the breath of buffalo in wintertime. It's the little shadow which runs across the grass and loses itself in the sunset. And from Ryokan, wandering Japanese Zen monk, our life in this world, to what should I compare it? It's like an echo resounding through the mountain into the empty sky. And from physicist, astronomer, and writer Adam Frank, who uh, very recently said this, From birth to the unknown moment of our passing, we ride a river of change. And yet in spite of all the evidence to the contrary, we exhaust ourselves in an endless search for solidity. We hunger for something that lasts, some idea or principle that rises above time and change. We hunger for certainty. That's a big problem. It might even be the problem, he said. Some time ago, a Tibetan monk told me about the uh, place where he grew up uh, that was in a very isolated area high in the mountains of Tibet where the people have no access uh, to matches. And of course there's no electricity and no gas for light, warmth, or cooking. So for these necessities of life in this part of the world, a fire is necessary. And to start Uh, a fire without matches, um, uh, a new fire every single day, uh, is quite a project. It takes some time. So the people that live in this area never let their fires completely go out. All day, every day, they keep a small fire burning. And at night, they cover it with just enough ashes so that in the morning, they have at least a a glowing coal to start their day with. The Buddhist monks in this area, I was told by this particular monk, uh, the Buddhist monks in this area practice so deeply with impermanence as their practice that at night they don't try to save any coals because they're so sure that in the morning they might not be alive. And also when they finish their last cup of tea at night, they turn their cup over for the same reason, to let the next person know that they've finished 
really finished. So every night they prepare to die. They're ready. The deep knowing and living with impermanence is an entryway, a gateway to liberation, a gateway to freeing the mind and the heart. The only thing that we can really know for sure is the constancy of change. It's the most basic fact of our existence. Nothing lasts. Nothing stays the same. So paradoxically, the only thing that we can hold on to is the realization, the intuitive insight of impermanence, anicca. The wisdom, wisdom, the understanding of anicca is really the bedrock of the Buddhist teachings. It was the initial insight that impelled him to leave the palace where he was born and grew up in search of the path to liberation. Siddhartha Gautama, our Buddha, grew up to be uh, grew up in very comfortable and protected surroundings in an area of India at the foot of the Himalayan mountains now known as Nepal seemingly living the good life his father and mother were the king and queen of the Sakyan clan in that area and at Siddhartha's birth a local wise man told his parents that this baby would grow up to be either an exceptionally wise ruler or he would become a renunciate and a great spiritual teacher if he encountered great suffering. Well, his parents, um, in order to keep him on the kingly track, set about to protect him from encountering great suffering. And this is from one of the Buddha's discourses to his monks. Monks, I lived in refinement, utmost refinement, total refinement. My father even had lotus ponds made in our palace, one where red lotuses bloomed, one where white lotuses bloomed, one where blue lotuses bloomed, all for my sake. I used no sandalwood that was not from Benares. My turban was of silk from Benares, as were my tunic, my lower garments, and my outer cloak. A white sunshade was held over me day and night to protect me from cold, heat, dust, dirt, and dew. I had three palaces, one for the cold season, one for the hot season, and one for the rainy season. During the four months of the rainy season, I was entertained in the rainy season palace by minstrels without a single man among them, and I did not once come down from that palace. But all of this protection, luxury, and sensual pleasure just couldn't keep him. It it didn't satisfy. And at one point, as young people are wont to do, Siddhartha wanted to go out on his own to see what life was like beyond the palace walls. So he asked his good friend, Chana, the chariot driver, to take him for a ride through town. Well, his father heard of this and ordered everything and everyone that might cause some disturbance to his son to be taken off the street, to be taken out of view. But, as we know, 
it's just not possible to have this kind of control over life. So not long after they were out beyond the palace wall, Siddhartha saw a person walking down the road with a lot of difficulty and covered with oozing sores. He'd lived a pretty protected life, and so he had never seen anything quite like this before, it said. And he asked his friend Shana, what is this? What's wrong with this person? And Shana responded, this is a very sick person. We all get sick. You'll get sick. I'll get sick. Your parents will get sick. At some point, everyone gets sick. Well, as I said, Siddhartha had been so protected, he hadn't seen anything quite like this, and it disturbed, was a disturbing sight. He wanted to go home, and he spent quite a restless night that night. But out again the next day, he wanted to go out. Down the road, uh, when he and Chana were going down the road, Siddhartha noticed someone moving very slowly, bent over with a cane, dry wrinkled skin, thin wispy gray hair. And again, he's protected life. He hadn't seen anything quite like this, it said. And he said to Chana, what's the matter with this person? And Chana responded, this is an old person. Everyone gets old. You'll get old. Your parents will get old. I'll get old. All your friends will get old. Well, back to the palace again. It was disturbing, and Siddhartha wanted to go home and spent another restless night. But again, the next day, he wanted to go. So out they went. And uh, as they were getting a little bit closer to the village, they saw a group of people all dressed in white. And they were crying and wailing and carrying a plank above their heads with something on it that was covered with cloth. And Siddhartha asked, what's this? What's going on here and what are they carrying? And Shana responded, this is a funeral procession. And they're carrying a dead body. Everyone dies. I'll die. You'll die. Your parents will die. Everyone dies. Well, again, it was quite disturbing to young Siddhartha, and he said, enough, enough for today, let's go home. Well, that night he barely slept, but wanted to go out again the next morning, and so they did. And not long after they were out in the chariot, Siddhartha noticed a man who was draped in orange cloth walking down the road. And he was walking with a lightness and a grace and a flow about him, bearing an air of peacefulness and an air of ease. And Siddhartha said, who's that? And Chana said, this man is a renunciate, a yogi. He's let go of his regular worldly life in search of the truth. And Siddhartha responded, let's go home. This is enough. It's said that because of Siddhartha's many lifetimes of development into an extremely sensitive and compassionate human being, the sights that he saw, the four heavenly messengers, as they're called, sickness, old age, death, and a truth-seeking yogi, struck him very deeply, very profoundly. He was moved by the impermanent, insubstantial nature of life that the first three messengers displayed, and also by the obvious suffering that he witnessed in relationship to these first three encounters. 
and he found himself interested and powerfully drawn towards what the fourth heavenly messenger represented, seeking peace, seeking freedom, seeking the truth. And again from one of the Buddha's discourses. Even though I was endowed with such fortune, such total refinement, the thought occurred to me. When an untaught person, subject to aging, to illness, and to death, not beyond any of these, sees another who is aged, ill, or dead, he or she is often horrified, humiliated, and disgusted, oblivious to himself that he, she, too, is subject to aging, illness, and death. And if I, who am subject to aging, illness, and death, not beyond any of these things, were to be horrified, humiliated, and disgusted on seeing another person who is old, ill, or dead, that would not be fitting for me. As I noticed this, the healthy person's intoxication with youth, health, and life entirely dropped away. Why should I, who am subject to disease, old age, and death, seek that which is also subject to disease, aging, and death? And he goes on. Monks, there are three forms of intoxication. Intoxication with youth, intoxication with health, intoxication with life. I overcame all intoxication with health, youth, and life as one who sees renunciation as rest. For me, energy arose. Unbinding was clearly seen. One of the most prevalent myths that we live with, uh, often quite unconsciously, is the myth that we can control this changing experience we call life. The Buddha talked about how powerful and consequential it is to experience just one moment fully, fully absorbed in the feeling of metta. He also said that even more powerful and fruitful than this is when there's one moment of clearly seeing the rapidity of the arising and passing away of phenomena. The stage in practice where one knows very surely and very clearly the momentary nature of all appearances. The very powerful direct experience and deep knowing of impermanence. The seed of liberation, the seed of freedom, lies in this clarity of seeing and knowing. And again, words from the Buddha. What is born will die. What has been gathered will be dispersed. What has been accumulated will be exhausted. What has been built up will collapse. And what has been high will be brought low. All conditioned things are transitory. Those who realize this are freed from sorrow. This is the path to freedom. Everything in this world, everything in this universe begins and ends, is born and dies, is constantly changing form. Every form of life, every object, every relationship, every sensation, every thought, 
every feeling, every mind state, every perception, every experience, every breath. The world of form outside and the world of form within, none of it is static. Our earth feels so solidly here. It seems so permanently in place. Some years ago I received a postcard from a friend that had a beautiful photograph on the front side of it. Some sand dunes with mountains behind them. And looking at this photo was a, a very pleasant experience. And then I turned the card over, <clears throat> and this was the explanation on the back. The gypsum forming these dunes originated from the dry flats 20 miles west of the park, deposited as seabed, evap seabed evaporates some 250 million years ago, when an ocean covered this area, creating at that time the limestone reef known today as the Guadalupe Mountains. Approximately 10 to 12 million years ago, when this region was uplifted and erosion began, the eroding gypsum was left along streams and riverbanks, and later the prevailing southwest winds blew it up against the base of the Guadalupe Mountains. So I turned the card back over to the other side, to the photo, and saw it with a different eye, we could say, and yet still with a pleasurable feeling in viewing this beautiful photograph. At times, the places that we live in often appear and, and feel as though they've forever been the way they are now, at least certain aspects of them. Our attitude and our actions often reflect this. I taught the Dhamma in Israel every few years for a period of about 10 years, a place where so much strife has been going on for centuries around whose place it is. And at one point I found out that Jerusalem, which is a city built of rock, on rock, built on Jerusalem stone and built of Jerusalem stone, that that city has been destroyed and rebuilt 13 times over the centuries. With all of the traveling that I've done over the years, there have been uh, times when I've looked up into the uh, sky to find some stars and star formations that are familiar. Kind of like meeting and uh, seeing old friends, no matter where you are. A while ago I found uh, this article in the uh, newspaper. Our own Milky Way galaxy is on a collision course with another galaxy, but you won't need to buy that insurance just yet. The most likely scenario is that Andromeda would first swing by our galaxy. It would then take perhaps a hundred million years to make a slow U-turn before plunging into the Milky Way's core. 
Another burst of star formations will then occur with winds from the shock waves driving out remaining gas and dust. After that, old and new stars will inter- intermingle to form an elliptical galaxy. There will be no trace of Earth, per- save perhaps for the 1970s era Pioneer and Voyager probes that are now beyond the solar system. I'm not sure they're still there, actually. But when this article was written, they were. The fireworks aren't due for uh, more than five billion years, long after the sun has burned out and reduced Earth to a frigid cinder. Five billion years from now, we'll all be dead anyway, said Hubble scientist Edward Weiler. However, he went on to say, if we move out to the stars someday, our descendants will certainly witness that from somewhere else in the galaxy. I think for most of us, the word form implies solidity. But in reality, all forms are forming and unforming, coming together and coming apart, constantly and without end. So our world really can't be solidly objectified. Our world, internally and externally, isn't a noun. It's a verb. It's constant, incessant activity. And most of the time, we only know this as an abstraction. We only know this as a concept. And actually, I think more often we forget it, or we ignore it, or we're constantly distracting ourselves from it by accumulating and by planning and by living in and out of memories, by fantasizing and hoping and expecting and coveting and fearing. If we rigidly, tightly hold on to how we want the future to be, or even how you want your next sitting to be, all of our energy gets used up in these thoughts. And then inevitably we come to face disappointment or maybe anger or maybe judgment or sadness or grief. And we've missed the fullness of the present moment. We've missed what Thich Nhat Hanh calls our appointment with life. And we're reinforcing, re, we're perpetuating the delusion, a false sense of control and permanence. So actually, much of the time, we're practicing permanence. I think for many, many people, much of the time, we, they, almost desperately want everything to stay as it is, or at least continue as we know it, or to become the way we want it to be, so much so that we believe we have control, that things will do what we want them to do. But this belief is really only make-believe, made-up beliefs. As our practice deepens and we begin to sense and see and know more clearly, we discover that actually belief has little or nothing to do with reality. And that the tighter we grasp onto our beliefs, the more limited our life is. 
A good question you might ask yourself now and then is, how often do I construct my life on this kind of flimsy, rickety foundation of make-believe, made-up beliefs, with all of their assumptions and sometimes misinformation, varying and changing opinions, ideas about this and that, and then hold on to it quite tightly. As we learn to pay a kind of extraordinary attention to our experiences of body and mind through our practice, we begin to directly touch, to experientially know the constant rapidity of change. From the seeming solid substantiality of form to the smaller, maybe even minute, micro-changes in sensations to the seeming substantiality of thoughts that fly through the mind. There's a Tibetan, Tibetan teaching that says all thoughts, good, bad, happy, sad, vanish into emptiness as the imprint of a bird in the sky. There's a story that I was told is true um, about a particular physicist who had done a great deal of research on matter and uh, its components and breaking it all down, breaking it down and breaking it down and finding nothing substantial. It said that at that point he went a little bit crazy and he started wearing these huge padded slippers just in case he fell through the floor. In reality, the very fabric, the very essence of life is change. So why do we fear? Why do we resist this perfectly natural phenomena? Change. The beginnings and the endings. The births and the deaths. Why can't we surrender to the truth of the moment? Why do we resist and fear so much of life? Without Anicca, there would be no life, actually. From Thich Nhat Hanh. If there's no impermanence, the grain of corn will remain a grain of corn forever, and you will never have a grain of corn to eat. Impermanence is crucial to the life of everything. Instead of complaining about impermanence, we might say, long live impermanence. Thanks to impermanence, everything is possible. So looked at from this perspective, Anicca is actually an amazing natural marvel. The universal movement of the constant change and cycling of all of life on the planet and beyond. And the possibility of immediate presence, for instance, with the potential joys in the changing process and not getting caught up, not getting lost, not sinking in hopes and fears, and attachments, and regrets. We might consider that all of the life on this planet is dying all of the time in similar volume, for instance, as the new life that brings beauty and joy and delight to us each spring. 
and the new day or the new life, we could say, that greets us each morning when we wake up. And from the uh, poet William Blake, He who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy, but he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. So how might we move into a deeper exploration and acceptance of the changing nature of things, the way of things, our nature as nature? There are many, many doors for us in our practice, many, many doors for us in our life. It's said that there are 84,000 Dharma doors. A very practical example related to our meditation practice. You've been sitting for an hour. Some degree of stillness and sweetness and tranquility has developed, and it's being known. And then the thought comes through, oh, this is really good. I'll just stay here for another hour or maybe more. And then strong bodily pain sensations in the legs start up. Maybe you continue to cling very tightly to your agenda, your hope, your preference to sit another hour, get through the pain, put up with it, tough it out, find a way to get rid of it, or try to ignore it. Or somehow maybe pretend that it's not there so that you can meet your preference, meet your goal. This relationship to pain makes it a thing, something solid, something substantial, a concept, and something to control or try to control so that you can continue with what you've chosen to do. The very set idea that you think will lead to your awakening, sitting another hour. Or maybe you relate to the pain with the Uh, without mind, I call it, meaning a mind not made up, a mind without any preference and without any agenda, and maybe even without the concept of pain. You might simply, directly, and intimately connect with what is, seeing all the various sensations occurring in your leg and notice them changing and moving recognizing that this sit right now is a meditation with changing sensations. Nothing solid, nothing static. Just being with, seeing, sensing, and knowing experience in the midst of the truth of how it is. This is fertile ground for wisdom to sprout up and blossom. The Dharma door, the mirror of the changing seasons around us and the changing seasons within us. Many years ago, during a three-month retreat that I was sitting at the Insight Meditation Society, I was taking a slow walk through the forest out back. And it was during the height of autumn color in New England. And I was seeing the ground literally carpeted with rich reds and 
shades of brown and clear yellows and shimmering golds and greens. It was beautiful to see. And I was really quite immersed in this experience. And then all of a sudden, a knowing came in. A knowing not through thought, but an intuitive sense that this beauty is death. That the world is dying in its unbearable beauty, is how it felt at that moment. And I cried. I cried quite a bit off and on uh, for a couple of days. I was grieving the loss of the world, so to say, feeling my heart breaking, and at the same time, elated. Though still on a conceptual level, to some degree, it was an opening, an opening and a release. And soon after this experience, a friend gave me this haiku. When with breaking heart I realized this world is only a dream, the oak tree looks radiant. This constant cycling, circling, the universal movement of life, light to dark to light, rainstorm to sunshine to cloud cover, changing sensations in the body, the movement and changing sensations of the breath. And a a poem by Mary Oliver about this, uh, she calls it, look, the trees are, it's not what it's called, it's called in Blackwater Woods. Look, the trees are turning their own bodies into pillars of light, are giving off the rich fragrance of cinnamon and fulfillment. The long tapers of cattails are bursting and floating away over the blue shoulders of the ponds. And every pond, no matter what its name is, is nameless now. Every year, everything I have ever learned in my lifetime leads back to this, the fires in the black river of loss, whose other side is salvation, whose meaning none of us will ever really know. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it, and when the time comes to let it go, let it go. As we look more closely at our own process through our practice, we might begin to see that we've been living under a kind of assumed identity. The assumed solidity of our body and thoughts, quickly followed along by clinging onto the thoughts and the feelings and the emotional states. All of the habitual fixations that we live with, believe, and call our own call me, call mine, and think that this is who we are. As we practice, we begin to experience, sense, and see more directly, clearly, and more often that things, that the phenomena of life aren't necessarily 
as they appear, or at least as they've appeared up until now. We begin to experience the whole thing, or at least parts of it, as process happening, as changing sensations, changing feelings, as various changing manifestations of the myriad formations of mind and body, each with particular qualities and flavors and textures that are constantly changing in themselves, or both in both gross and in very subtle ways. And so our relationship to all the forms, both inner and outer, begins to change. The compulsive, addictive grasping, trying to hold on to the passing show, begins to lose its strong attraction. Trying to control what is actually uncontrollable, ungovernable, this ongoing miracle of constant change we call life begins to soften as we open our hands and open our heart. And we begin to see how excruciating it is to grasp on so tightly. The fear that's underneath this impetus to control, the fear in, of being in and being with life as it is, begins to relax and open and weaken. The fear begins to fade as we surrender more and more deeply to the truth of impermanence, to the truth of the moment. So now we're practicing impermanence. When a particular Dhamma student here in New Mexico began to connect more deeply with the truth of Anicca and the understanding that he didn't have any control over the unfolding of events, and as he expressed it, he not only saw more honestly and clearly and began to accept that his day never went just as he planned it, he also began to see and accept that his aging body was no different than the day. He recognized that this, too, was just simply unfolding, undoing, according to conditions that he had absolutely no control over. In a practice interview one evening, he told me that he was beginning his sit each morning before going to work with forgiving his body and forgiving the day before it started. Because in his words... It never goes as I plan, hope, expect, dream it to be. His habit for many years had been one of aversion, primarily a stance of irritation, anger at, kind of taking an offensive stance toward things, people, and events not going his way. His early morning forgiveness practice wasn't out of the feeling that the day or his body had or was going to do something wrong and he needed to forgive them for this. Forgiveness was actually coming from the softening heart of acceptance for how it is. This softening heart was also forgiving itself for the pain that had had been experienced for so many years and hardening against how things are. Hardening against the truth 
that things just naturally arise, change, and pass away without end. Occasionally people ask me, as you may sometimes ask yourself or ask others who uh, practice, who meditate, why do you practice? And at one point, uh, when I was asked this, much to my surprise, out of my mouth came, I'm practicing for my death. And so it is. I am practicing for my death. On one level, so that if conditions allow, I'll have the great strength and clarity of concentration and mindfulness to really be fully present at what we think of as the big death. I think for most of us, this moment seems like it will really be an extraordinary moment. But actually, although I haven't been there yet, (laughs) it will just be another moment. Another moment with all of the same principles applying that apply to any other moment. Just simply a moment to be with, with the immediacy of what's occurring in the body, in the mind, and the heart. A moment like any other moment to just be as you are. A moment to be approached and connected with in a fresh way that beginner's mind, that don't-know mind, a a moment that has never before been experienced. So, from one perspective, in the overall perspective of practice, I'm practicing towards the possibility of being present for this moment. But over the years, the momentary reality of much of practice in the here and now has been with a mindful presence that recognizes and relinquishes the ways the so-called self keeps recreating this assumed identity, this delusion of a separate, solid, static me recognizing the habitually learned patterns that support selfing and letting go, relinquishing relinquishing this again and again. One way this could be said is that it's a practice of seeing the death of who I've thought I was and recognizing the truth of who I am. There are hundreds thousands, millions of little endings, minute deaths, moment to moment to moment, breath by breath, and in ways that we never imagined or expected. And as our practice deepens and matures, it gets easier and easier to open to, to clearly see, accept, and surrender to this utterly natural phenomena. The assumed solidity, the assumed identity of me, I, and you that's so frightening to let go of is seen through our practice more and more just as process, beginning 
changing and ending again and again every minute every second through each sense door if we're really attentive and as both Saido and I have mentioned briefly in previous Dhamma talks what appears to be a steady flow of experience even the presence of consciousness itself is not as we ordinarily perceive it to be the reality of body-mind experience can be likened to the separate frames of a film the illusion being as though phenomena happens with an ongoing continuous flow but in reality it's all beginning and ending arising and falling away in the most minute le- on the, at the most minute level and very rapidly second by second by second the acceptance of change the acceptance of the forming and the unforming of the birth and the death is really truly the acceptance of life and the nature of life all the aspects of who we think we are are they just keep changing including what we think we want what we think we need our desires that often seem so clear and so strong and so right in any given moment <coughs> these two can change quite rapidly as i'm sure you've noticed at times as we learn to play pay a closer and closer attention we see that pleasant experience sometimes changes into unpleasant experience and vice versa and we see that pleasant and unpleasant can very quickly move into likes and dislikes and then rapidly move into seeming needs and strong or strong rejections and we see that we're momentarily relatively happy we're momentarily 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 relatively unhappy all relative conditioned states of mind totally dependent on a whole set of conditions which are themselves also changing moment to moment states of anger, irritation, resentment, judgment, feeling so solid and they seem so right and so absolute at times. And as we explored a bit in uh, the talk on afflictive emotions, anger is a very powerful, very energetic, passionate energy. With a clear attention into anger, seeing and knowing and letting go of identification letting go of self-referencing my anger my righteous anger letting go of this contracted self-centered quality inherent in anger meaning pulling out the thread of self we can then clearly see what's actually taking place on all sides from all perspectives there's clear presence immediate connection with the possibility then of anger transforming into a mirror like wisdom out of which can spring appropriate compassionate 
action if necessary. As we learn to receive experience with more clarity and ease, we begin to see ourselves as well as others with less judgment. And we might begin to see that we are, to whatever degree, also still acting out of and have in the past acted out of ignorance and forgetfulness acted out or more accurately reacted out of old conditioned habituated places of suffering many times ourselves and so we change we begin to meet ourselves as well as others with more open-hearted clarity and more compassion The 13th century Zen master Dogen spoke about Buddha nature and its relationship to impermanence. And he said this, We do not just have Buddha nature, we are Buddha nature. When things are seen in their fleetingness and ephemerality, their impermanence, not only is understanding great wisdom born, but also the other pillar of deepest insight, great compassion, impartial care, love, that may even include one's enemy. Probably most all of us at times uh, have had a very strong identification with our face and our body in relationship to how it looked when we were younger. I certainly have, and I, I suspect everyone has. When my mother was in her 80s and 90s, there were times when the two of us would find ourselves standing next to each other in front of a mirror, looking at ourselves and looking at each other. And at one point when we were doing this, she said to herself and to me, I see an old woman. It's so strange. She kept repeating it over and over. It's so strange, it's so strange. I see an old woman. I've changed so much. It's so strange to see. And once when she was 91, 91 years old, and we were doing this, she said, I look older than any, everybody else in the whole world. And then she said, it doesn't match how I feel inside. It's so strange, it's so strange. Is it strange? I mean, really, is it strange? Stranger than what? <laughs> it's just life doing its thing. It's life being lifey. At one point, uh, maybe the last time I taught in Israel, I was given this poem uh, by an Israeli poet, uh, Rachel Chalfi called Such Tenderness. Such tenderness in our bodies when they abandon us slowly, reluctant, reluctant to hurt us with a sudden jolt. Gradually, wistfully, like a semi-sleeping beauty, they weave for us tiny wrinkles of light and wisdom, not faults of an earthquake. An airy network, cracks of horror. 
How kind of our bodies that they don't alter our faces all at once, that they don't break our bones with one blow. No, cautiously, like a pale moon bestowing its glow, they illumine us in a net of grieving nerves. Fold our skin at the edges, harden our spines so that we can withstand it all. Such beauty, such tenderness in our bodies that gradually betray us gradually prepare us, tell us in whispers, little by little, hour by hour, that they are leaving. Have you ever looked at your face in the mirror for a long time? just really focused and looked for a while. It keeps changing. It just keeps on changing. Whose face is this? Who is this face? Who sees? Once in a long retreat that I was sitting, I was sitting outside observing the grass uh, each day, and it was late fall. And I was noticing that it was losing its moisture. It was drying up, and it was losing its color. And it was changing shape, changing form, curling over. I was being acutely aware of this day by day. Are we really any different than this? Are we? What's the Dhamma of grass? No matter how much moisturizer we use, no matter how many vitamins we take, no matter how many energetic walks we take, or how much yoga we do, or no matter how much good healthy food we eat, our skin dries out. Our hair loses its color. Our bodies change shape. No matter who we are or how hard we try, we just don't stay young. This mass of skin and bones has its schedule to keep, and there is nothing we can do about it. And a poem, another poem, by a woman named Liesel Mueller, And she calls this poem Fugitive. My life is running away with me. The two of us are in cahoots. I hold still while it paints dark circles under my eyes, streaks my hair gray, stuffs pillows under my dress. In each new room, the mirror reassures me I'll not be recognized. I'm learning to travel light, like the juice in the power line. My baggage, swallowed by memory, weighs almost nothing. No one suspects its value. When they knock on my door, badges flashing, I open up. I don't match their description. Oh, wrong room, they say, and apologize. My life in the corner winks and wipes off my fingerprints. In the Buddha... Words from the Buddha. Contemplation of impermanence should be cultivated cultivated for dispelling the conceit, I am. 
For when one perceives impermanence, Megiya, the perception of not-self is established. With the perception of not-self, the conceit, I am, is eliminated. And that is Nibbana, here and now. It's hard to see how we can continue to keep what in this culture is almost like a secret. With everything changing and aging and such multitudes doing the dying. If we're really, truly inclined towards freedom, we'll have to give up the notion that change or even death is a catastrophe or detestable or avoidable or strange. Our practice directs us towards cultivating, towards learning and cultivating directly, experientially, about change. The macro and micro cycling of life. And that we, our body-mind continuum, is not somehow separated out from this process. At the age of 18, my closest high school girlfriend and I went to Stratford, Ontario for a few days to see some Shakespearean plays. And on our way home, we were in an automobile accident, and my friend was killed. It was really quite amazing. One minute she was alive and driving the car, and we'd had these three wonderful days together, and the next moment she was lying in the middle of the highway dying and myself with just a few scrapes and bruises. And I was washing her dying body with water, and then she was just gone. It was an extremely powerful wake-up call for me. And not long after she died, I resolved that I would live life fully every minute, every second, I think I said, because now I knew that life could end in a second. And of course, I've forgotten my resolve many times, but I've also remembered it many times. This experience with its lucid insight into impermanence was a big part of what eventually guided me towards the Buddhist teachings and practice. Although in my 18-year-old self, I uh, didn't think it or word it this way. And it's been interesting to uh, see how this resolve to live fully every moment has unfolded over the years. There's been an ongoing letting go of many of the complexities and seeming necessities of what we call normal life. Living more fully has meant living more simply, which has allowed me to then be more fully with the moments of living the process of change, the beginnings and the endings, the births and the deaths. As a lay practitioner, this letting go or this renunciation has evolved over the years to be a relinquishment of what doesn't serve awakening. And as I'm sure many of you have found, it's a process that unfolds quite naturally through our practice. 
either by conscious choice, a decision made between this or that, or simply through really being present with clear, mindful attention and responding in whatever ways are the healthiest and most appropriate both for oneself and in relationship to others. Which at times may result in letting go, in renouncing some of one's habitual ways of engaging or not engaging, both inwardly and outwardly. Including recognizing and letting go of some of one's attachments which really doesn't at all mean rejecting those that are closest to us. But rather, it gives us the possibility of relating to them in what might be a new way. There's a beautiful Native American teaching called A Cherokee Feast of Days, and I'm just going to share a little bit of it with you. It's about the seasons, and this is autumn. Can there be anything more beautiful than the seasons of a tree? A tree stands in beauty from year to year and keeps its grace and dignity. We can learn when we watch a tree. It constantly prunes itself, continually sheds any excess. The Buddha said that living a single moment, seeing the impermanence of all conditioned things, is more valuable than living a hundred years without seeing it. Clear and sure insight into anicca leads us towards the end of confusion and anguish and towards understanding the cause of suffering. Very surely knowing the momentariness of all appearances opens the door of insight into the conditional, selfless, or impersonal, or empty self, empty nature of all things, all phenomena. In our thinking, probably most of us assume that permanence provides security. But in actuality, Although change may be difficult and at times quite disturbing, at least at first, as we open to it and as we get to know it more deeply, Anicca can really be a very profound inspiration to go deeper into our practice. And we may also come to realize that on one level, it's really truly a gift of life. What if nothing ever happened? I mean, what if nothing ever changed? What if nothing ever changed? Can you even imagine what it would be like if nothing ever changed? An incredible nightmare, actually. No change, no life. In 1985, my house burned down. And fortunately, no one was there when it happened. My three adult sons and I were away visiting my mother, who was living in Mexico at the time. And a few days after we'd arrived at my mother's house, I received a phone call from a friend who lived down the road from our house in the Michigan woods. And he called to tell me that my house had burned to the ground. 
my first response uh, uh, with him was denial. I said, you're kidding. But of course, who would call a friend up long distance on Christmas yet uh, <laughs> and tell them that their house had burned down to the ground? <laughs> so after we finished our very brief conversation, I hung up the phone and I cried very hard for about 15 minutes. And my mother, who was standing right next to me, she just held me, put her arms around me and held me, didn't ask any questions. And then after that, my brother and I sat down. He was also visiting. We sat down and we talked. And by the end of our two-hour conversation, the fire turned out to be a gift. I didn't have any things to hold me. I didn't have any things to bind me anymore. The spiritual path had burned its way open for me, so to say. And as some of you know, in Asian countries, it's not at all unusual for people in their 50s, sometimes even late 40s, 50s, 60s, uh, whose family responsibilities are essentially finished, to go and live the rest of their life as a spiritual life. So to make a, a long story short, about one year after that fire, I ended up going to Asia for a year and a half or so and practiced quite ardently, quite diligently. And then continued this way upon coming back to this country. If it wasn't for that fire, there's a very strong possibility that I would not be here with you now in this way. That huge change was a great gift that's still unwrapping itself. And a haiku from Basho. Since my house burned down, I have a better view of the rising moon. From Carlos Castaneda's book, Journey to Ixlan, the thing to do when you're impatient is to turn to your left and ask advice from your death. An immense amount of pettiness is dropped if your death makes a gesture to you, or if you catch a glimpse of it, or if you just have the feeling that your companion is there watching you. Not long before Carlos died, he and three of his friends were having lunch together. And uh, I'd like to read just a little bit of a, an account of that from Michael Ventura, who was one of these three friends. He was much thinner, older, obviously ill. But for all his fragility, he seemed much livelier, happier, and even funnier. A woman at the table said she loved her job, her husband, and her child, but still she felt a lack. She had no spiritual life. How could she achieve a spiritual life? 
Answering the woman, Carlos didn't change the lightness or generosity of his manner, yet a steely thing came into his voice, a tone that made his words pierce all of us. He said that when she got home at night, she should sit in her chair and remember that her child, her husband, everyone she loved, and herself were going to die, and they would die in no particular order, unpredictably. Remember this every night, and you'll have soon have a spiritual life, said Carlos. Later in the conversation, this woman asked how she could discipline herself to follow his advice and follow it deeply so that it wouldn't be just an exercise. Carlos says, said, you give yourself a command. On the page, there's no duplicating how he said it. He spoke quietly, but it was as though he'd suddenly jammed a knife into the tabletop. What's that mean, one of us asked. It means you give yourself a command. And that was that. A command is not a promise. A command is not trying. A command is not something to be obeyed, that must be obeyed. Excuse me, a command is something that must be obeyed. His tone invokes something deeper than the idea of mere will. His was a call to action. He wasn't talking about mulling or analyzing or wishing. To step on the path, you step on the path. There's no substitute for that. About a year later, the woman asked, who asked those questions at our lunch sent a pamphlet that Carlos had requested she send on to me. One passage goes, Sorcerers understand discipline as the capacity to face with serenity odds that are not included in our expectations. For them, discipline is a volitional act that enables them to take anything that comes their way without regrets or expectations. For sorcerers, discipline is an art, the art of facing infinity without flinching, not because they are filled with toughness, but because they are filled with awe. Discipline is the art of feeling awe, says Carlos. And of course, the truth of a Nietzsche must be learned over and over again, every night. We don't grow in a straight line, but in ascending and descending and tilting circles. And what makes all of this bearable is awe. That undefended, open-hearted quality that we could call awe in relationship to the way of things. The truth of impermanence is a gateway out of the feeling of separateness. It's a gateway out of this suffering of self-centered existence. We begin to understand that we are intimately interwoven or intimately woven into this endlessly changing reflective web of life. And we also really truly begin to understand the suffering in ourselves and in others, the suffering and the anguish created by trying to hold on in resisting the truth that every facet of life within us and surrounding us is not fixed, not permanent, not static. We and it are intricately woven together with everything constantly changing and everything reflecting everything in this many-hued and faceted jeweled net of life. 
And so, distilling all of this, distilling all of our experience as human beings in relationship to Anicca into a very concise teaching that the Buddha has offered us. And just briefly this evening, our experience as human beings can be categorized and understood to occur through five particular aspects of being, classically in the teachings called the five aggregates. And as I mention each of these, please uh, try to hear and to receive them with a momentary intuitive reflection in relationship to your own experience. The first aggregate is material form, the body and all parts of the body. The next is feeling, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feeling. The next aggregate is perception, how we perceive what's being experienced. The fourth aggregate is mental formations. And the last category, the last category or the aggregate of our last aggregate of our human experience is consciousness. Eye, ear, nose, tongue, touch, and mind consciousness. Anicca, impermanence, is the arising, change, and ending that occurs in, that occurs with, each of these aggregates of our experience, meaning that they break up and continuously dissolve because they don't remain the same even for a moment. We can and we do directly experience, see, and know this very clearly in both gross and minute ways through our practice. The Buddha tells us that the aggregates in their gross and even in their very subtle, refined, and sublime manifestations are to be regarded as such. Material form, matter, should be regarded as a lump of froth because it will not stand squeezing and that ultimately it's unattractive and foul. Feeling, the feeling aggregate, is like a bubble on water because it can only be enjoyed for an instant. And so in reality, it's painful because it's fraught with unsatisfactoriness. Perception, the aggregate of perception, is as a mirage because it causes illusion and it's unmanageable. Mental formation, mental formations like a banana tree trunk have no core and are not self because they're totally unmanageable. And lastly, the Buddha tells us that consciousness is as a conjuring trick because it deceives and that it's impermanent because it has the nature to arise and end. About nine years ago, I took my mother in to live with me at my home here in Taos, which turned out to be the last 15 months of her life. 
Early one morning at the age of 92, she died in her bed. And within a, within a very short time after her death, as I was sitting uh, very closely and very attentively with her body in her bedroom, I very clearly saw all of the tension, all of the accumulated tightness of anxiety and fear and irritation and clinging. I saw all of this just dissolve from her face. With a transformation in my mother's face to an exquisite face of peace and ease. This experience was really a very powerful teaching and inspiration for me towards deepening my practice in the here and now. With a strong sense of why wait until death for this peace, this ease. Our daily practice right here in retreat and in our daily lives brings us to confront, sense, and receive the river of change and uncertainty, this river of anicca. Our continuing diligent practice is bound to render us more patient, forgiving, generous, and inclusive with humor and goodwill and compassion and wisdom. As understanding of anicca deepens, which happens out of continuing and deepening direct experience of impermanence, it actually brings a great relief and lightness into our life. We no longer need to haul around such a heavy load there's the time and the energy available to live to our heart's content. And I'd like to close the talk with a poem by Australian poet uh, and cartoonist uh, Michael Lunig. And Michael Lunig draws a, a little cartoon with each of his poems. And I have to describe the cartoon because it's important in relationship to the poem. It's a little line drawing of a man who's standing up. And in his left hand, he's holding a frying pan. His arm is stretched straight out to the left, holding this frying pan. And in the frying pan, there's a big blob of black stuff with smoke billowing out of it. And his head is turned to the left with his eyes wide open, looking at the frying pan and the blob of black stuff and smoke billowing. And this is the poem that goes with it. We give thanks for the invention of the handle. Without it, there would be many things we couldn't hold on to. As for the things we can't hold on to anyway, let us gracefully accept their ungraspable nature and celebrate all things elusive, fleeting, and intangible. They mystify us and make us receptive to truth and beauty. We celebrate and give thanks. And let's sit quietly for just a moment.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.